Welcome to In My Backyard, an open conversation about children and mental health. We all know a child who's struggling, whether that child tells us or not. In this podcast, we speak with experts on the many factors of emotional distress in children, how to address those factors, and how to create a community where all children can be healthy and happy. This podcast is made possible through generous donations from supporters and listeners like you. Please visit tgclb.org or text HOPE to 562-262-5689 to make a one-time donation or join our Hope and Healing Club to become a monthly donor today. Your host is Trisha Costales, CEO of the Guidance Center, a nonprofit children's mental health agency in Long Beach, California. I'm Trisha Costales, your host of In My Backyard. I'm a licensed clinical social worker and the chief executive officer of the Guidance Center, a nonprofit children's mental health agency serving 3,500 children and families every year. In today's episode, we're going to revisit the pandemic of systemic and institutionalized racism against people of color and the impact it has on the emotional well-being of children and youth. The mental health system has long recognized that chronic stress has a negative impact on mental health, but it is only relatively recently that trauma and chronic stress are defined broadly to include societal elements such as poverty, community violence, and racism and discrimination. As written in a 2019 abstract by Dr. David Williams of the Harvard Department of Social and Behavioral Sciences, there is a large body of high-quality scientific evidence that documents the persistence of racial discrimination in employment, housing, banking, and other commercial transactions, and in a broad range of domains of everyday life. The discrimination experienced by people of color includes acute major life events, such as police profiling, as well as what we might call everyday discrimination. That might be someone crossing the street to avoid a man of color, calling the hotel manager because there's a black family using the pool, or feeling threatened by a black child knocking on a door in a certain neighborhood away from their kind. More recent studies demonstrate the association between experiences of racism and mental health struggles. They show that this association begins in childhood, leading to higher rates of depression, anxiety, and the behavioral disorders that are a hallmark of childhood trauma. In addition to the trauma from direct and witnessed experiences of racism and discrimination, Families of color are also at risk of something called generational trauma. According to Dr. Rashana Chapel, generational trauma can occur when a group is subject to a traumatic experience like war, natural disasters, racism, sexism, or oppression. The effects of that trauma can be passed down to subsequent generations through genetic, cultural, and familial transmission. The symptoms include hypervigilance, fears of death, hopelessness for the future, mistrust of outsiders, anxiety, depression, panic attacks, PTSD, and low self-esteem. In today's podcast, we're going to speak with Dr. Tiara Ellis, founder and executive director of Psyches of Color. 
Psyches of Color is a nonprofit organization focused on decreasing the stigma of mental health in Black and Latinx communities by providing culturally relevant mental health services and support. We're fortunate to have a conversation with Dr. Tierra about the real life impact of racism and discrimination on our young people of color. So welcome, Dr. Tierra. Thank you so much for joining us today. I have spent quite a bit of time on your website, very impressed by it, but you and I have not met until today. So for my benefit and for our listeners, will you please share a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I am Dr. Tierra Ellis. I am a licensed clinical and school psychologist. I am also a community psychologist. I received my doctorate degree in school psychology at Howard University and uh, with an emphasis in forensic psychology. I'm currently the CEO of Ellis Psychological Services. I'm also the co-owner of Authentically Black Services, LLC. And I am also an assistant professor of clinical psychology at California State Polytechnic University in Pomona, or Cal Poly Pomona. And I am also the founder of Psyches of Color, as you know, and uh, we provide a lot of strengths-based and, um, and strength-based and culturally relevant approaches to mental health support for Black and Latinx adolescents and young adults. And our goal is to decrease the stigma of mental health and promote what we call radical healing. And yeah, I'm also, yeah, I'm like, oh, I can keep going. I'm like, should I stop? You're very busy. Let's just acknowledge you are very busy. That's very impressive. I'm very busy. I'm like, oh yeah, that thing over there and over there. It's a very impressive resume. Um, but could you tell us a little bit about Psyches of Color? Like what services are provided? Well, let's start there. What services do you guys provide? Sure. And also to something I didn't mention is I'm also super passionate and this is a good segue into Psyches of Color. Very passionate about creating and integrating culturally relevant approaches such as hip hop culture and psychotherapeutic tech, uh, treatments for which I'm so committed to expanding in the mental health field. And so uh, segueing into Psyches of Color, um, as I mentioned, the services, so we provide that the uh, mental health support to our Black and Latinx adolescents and young adults. Um, the services we provide are very strengths-based and culturally relevant in that we are focusing on the strengths of our youth and not necessarily deficits or weaknesses, so to say. I don't want to say deficits, but we all have our strengths and our weaknesses, um, relatively speaking. And so we focus on our strengths. We are also very intentional about the way in which we, uh, the words we use. We're very intentional about that. Um, we use um, at promise youth instead of at risk. You know, just to give you an example of how we are mindful of the way in which we speak about our youth. Now, the services we provide, we provide uh, mentoring. So we provide a lot of, uh, we have about six programs, um, one of them being mentoring, a mentoring program where we, you know, connect our youth to a mentor of their choice. And it could be a mentor based off identity based off of career, whatever that mentor mentee matches are in regards to who they want to be matched with. We also provide a, uh, we also have a, a program called Exert Your Voice, where 
youth express themselves through various forms of art and they do so. So it's really an integration of hip hop culture or music and therapy or so to say mental health topics, right? So, um, or what we would call hip hop therapy or music therapy. And so we integrate music and um, mental health. We also have a uh, Pen Pal POC program where youth who identify as being system impacted are able to have a space that's very safe, brave and affirming to them. And so we have that space for them where we and we really send the message of using writing as a method to heal. And so um, we also are planning to work with youth who are incarcerated, who um, where we want to send the message that we're not free until we all are. And so that, that pen pal program, we actually just finished a randomized control pilot trial uh, just recently on that program. Uh, we also have a nurture and POC program, which is for our parenting teams who are between the ages of 13 and 25. So we are also thinking of the, the mental health of our young parents and how and teaching them how to, the skills in, in regards to their mental health, but also being a parent in this age. Um, we also have Black and Brown Minds Matter, which is a, a program that served as a catalyst to Psyches of Color. And that program in particular, it started as Black Minds Matter. And that program is essentially we teach them how to identify signs and symptoms of mental health. It's a positive youth development group. So they also normalize and validate each other. And so very cool group. Um, family support. Indirect supports can't directly support the youth. So that's why we support our family members, because we can provide all this support to our youth. But if they go home and, and their families aren't getting some of those supports, then that can also diminish their mental health just by way of that. And so we are also we also provide a program for our families as well. And so... Yes. Excellent. That I, It sounds like very creative programming yeah. and I think it, it's really inspiring. But, you know, I could you talk a little bit about what inspired you initially to create services that are specifically for young people of color? Absolutely. I love this question. I get too passionate and I'm trying to chill. But <laughs> so I did many research presentations when I was at Howard University for graduate school um, regarding dismantling the school to prison pipeline. And this is where I applied to the Youth Justice Leadership Institute Fellowship, which is within the National Juvenile Justice Network, where I did community-based participatory research and created the, the Black Minds Matter program. And that program served, like as I mentioned earlier, as a catalyst to Psyches of Color. So this was our first randomized control trial pilot that was mixed methods research that I did on my own. <laughs> and it was also um, the voices of the youth is what created our programs. So our programs weren't necessarily just like created by me. It was more so hearing from the voices of our youth through our research. And um, so being very intentional and mindful of what our youth need. And um, we were working with youth in South Central LA, um, youth who all 100% of them have been incarcerated. And so they were at a continuation school and just hearing their voices and hearing their needs. And so 
Yeah, so that's how it started. And I keep going, but I'm going to stop there. <laughs> <laughs> I, I appreciate that very much. And I, I want to take a moment actually to acknowledge my, my privilege. I try to approach this topic with humility. I try to be an ally. I try to be mindful of my own biases. We all make mistakes. Um, I try to own them and recognize them, but I do own that I will never fully understand what it means to grow up as a person of color in a society that doesn't value you equally as your white peers. And, um, so I would like to hear from you if you could please help us to explore what is the personal impact of experiencing racism on these young people that you serve. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's a really good question. The personal impact of racism of a person on a person can play out by way of systemic racism or just just systemic inequalities, which are those barriers that people of color experience that ultimately presents um, those barriers for education, employment, home ownership from the, you know, the family side and um, just overall economic equality where they're, you know, just stuck in this rat race where they're not able to actually uh, evolve you know, in an economically economically way. Uh, and, and I also think it's important to understand the difference between equality and equity. And, and I say, you know, equality is when law and policy or the government essentially treats everybody the same, you know, where when we think about equity, we're taking everybody's like individual circumstances or groups individual circ- or group circumstances to address what is meaningful equality of opportunity? And just knowing that that can actually really address some of these systemic inequities. Um, but those two aren't talked about enough to, it's in regards to the, the differences and its impact on our communities. You know, I've, I've read, um, as I was researching for today, that as many of a quarter of Black Americans report experiencing what they called everyday discrimination, you know, that the person crossing the street because they assume you're dangerous because of the color of your skin, those the experience that is often is several times a week. And, you know, we know about chronic stress as clinicians it's hard to imagine a way that experiencing this in such an ongoing basis doesn't diminish a child's sort of self-worth and resiliency. It's like water torture. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, how is that reflected in the population you serve? Oh, I see. You're referring to microaggressions. Literally, as you're talking, I'm thinking. Yes. Yes. Micro. The sort of ongoing onslaught of just the daily little microaggressions that, you know, if it were a one and done, you could maybe shrug it off. But the sort of repetitive experience of microaggressions. And I I teach uh, at Cal Poly, I teach in the MFT program, I teach this multicultural psychology um, class, literally just, it's fresh in my head. But yeah, microaggressions, those are uh, those brief and commonplace daily or behavioral indignities. And they can be intentional, they can be unintentional, but they can also, what they communicate is 
hostile, derogatory, negative racial slights. Um, and this can be very harmful on, on one psyche and it can target a person or a group. Now there's different types of microaggressions too that people aren't don't even realize. Um, like there's uh, micro assault where it's blatant, blatant. And this is what, this is like calling somebody, calling a black woman the N word, right? Then you have a micro insult. And this is where, uh, where you would think like of a, a white woman when she covers her purse, when, she, when a black man walks near her, that's a micro insult. When you have these unintentional behaviors or verbal comments or what they convey is rudeness or insensitivity to that person, um, just demeaning them. And then you have a micro invalidation. And that's where you, as it sounds, there's those verbal comments or behaviors that invalidates or negates someone's experience. A perfect example is black, when, when they were saying black lives matter and then they were like, well, all lives matter, you know? So that's the perfect example of what a micro-invalidation is. But like taking that a step further, you know, experiencing this on a regular basis and a continual basis, how does that impact a child? Is that the pop a child? Yes. yes. It, it, it absolutely can really impact a child in such a way where um, they may not be an attentive in, in the classroom. They may not... Uh, be alert. Um, something that actually can help with this. I'm not sure if you're familiar with racial socialization. I'm not, please. So racial socialization is when parents prepare their children to navigate just being a person of color in America. And they may also teach them ways to survive such discrimination, which um, those results have um, demonstrated positive outcomes, such as Black pride, or a sense of identity. Because to go back to your question, um, when they don't have this racial socialization from parents, they may actually not have a great sense of identity and maybe not sure of who they are. Um, and this is where even colorism may come in and you'll hear about that or internalized racism where they start to hate themselves or just who they are given what they hear externally from the outside world. And so this can ex extremely impact a, a child's psyche. Absolutely, their self-work and resilience. But racial socialization is fairly newer term that has been really growing in the literature in regards to addressing that. Well, and then like pushing it a little bit further, you know, there are these ongoing microaggressions or micro um, invalidations. I loved that term. That's a new term for me. So thank you for teaching me that. But we also know that black people are three times more likely to be killed by the police. And as much as we talk about it, as much as there have been protests, we have not seen these numbers improve over time. Then you add in, you know, the heartbreak of our Ahmed Arbery or that poor little boy who was knocking on a door recently and to collect his siblings. And, you know, I read recently, it was just this week, a New York Times article that said that 79% of black Americans say police violence impacts their mental health. Sure. Um, could you speak to that? Like, I, I don't know how to understand how not to be rageful about it. Like, how are you not rageful about it? Or how are you not, I mean, you sort of as a collective, it 
terrified about it. Like, how do you go out in the street knowing, you know, there's you're that much more likely to be targeted because of the color of your skin that has to impact mental health. It has to. Right. It does. And what comes to my mind, especially as you were mentioning Ahmaud Aubrey and just going back to, to 2020, um, and you know, Breonna Taylor and, and George Floyd, I recall social media. That's what comes to my mind when you think about how this ongoing violence impacts these black youth or black people in general. So social media and through vicarious trauma and vicarious trauma is another thing that is, is very common, especially with black Americans, where essentially it's this emotional residue or of this indirect exposure to trauma from hearing narratives of people who encounter traumatic experiences firsthand. Like you hear it on CNN updates, you hear it on social media, the news, um, whatever it may be, right? And again, going back to like the Mike Browns, the Breonna Taylors, Ahmaud Aubrey, and it personally hit me when one of those individuals whose name went viral was a previous client of mine. And that's oh the, no, yeah. So that's when it hit me, and I was like, wow, you know, it really it hits you in such a way, and so. Um, yeah, and so the vicarious trauma, especially just knowing this generation and how social media and the media in general is very popular and it's only gotten more popular. And just what is the messages that are being sent on in the media? And that's the messages that Black Americans actually, you know, read and they feed to their brains, their minds. And and that it can cause that hypervigilance. That can cause a lot of different, um, you know, just uh, racial stress. And, you know, so, yeah, absolutely. It definitely impacts the well-being of people and Black people in general. You know, I remember at sort of the height of the uh, Black Lives Matter protests yeah. and um, I consider them a righteous uprising. Yeah. Uh, my mom called me because I have... Uh, now 20, um, but year old sons, they're twin sons, they're 20. And she's like, tell them to be careful with the police. The, and I was like, mom, <laughs> yeah. they're, they don't have the same risk. Right. Like, of course I teach them what to do if you get pulled over, but realistically, statistically, we don't have that same risk. Like my, I don't have to fear for my children in the same way. Right. when they leave the house or when they go off and drive. And that's a, a big thing to emotionally, psychologically get yourself around. Right. And that's, that's what we call privilege. And that's something that Black people don't have. People of color, you know, don't have that privilege that is just given to you just by being a white American, you know? And so, yeah, absolutely. You know, one thing that we know about is the detrimental impact that trauma has on a developing child's ability to to de to develop, to attend to the tasks. Um, their brain spends way too much time in a vigilant state, takes energy away from all the other things they're supposed to be learning. And I've been thinking quite a lot about what that means as it relates to racism and discrimination, because 
these are stressors that are persistent and they're not resolved. So that sense of hypervigilance, yes. what's the downstream impact on a child's well-being? Absolutely. Yeah. What it can do is it, it may actually result in a child's inability to really attend to their basic needs, such as eating, sleeping, or even just, you know, relaxing or in interacting with others. And they may feel on edge, you know, just anticipating a traumatic experience, or, which may ultimately be a false alarm. But the way that their brains have been so conditioned to trauma um, from the, you know, where the hypervigilance comes is that they're always on alert, they're on edge, and uh, they may even develop this inability to trust others as they may experience even bouts of paranoia. And it can impact them in the classroom, especially, you know, when their atten attention is affected. And so, I mean, I can go on and on, but it definitely, hypervigilance can definitely impact a child in the classroom in so many different settings. It seems to me that's why an organization like Psyches of Color is so important because that hypervigilance or that almost paranoia, although it you could argue justified paranoia, but still Absolutely. would make it hard to seek help because you don't know who to trust. You don't know who will understand you. But if you're going to a place like Psyches of Color, yeah. that makes that you can walk in assuming that you will be understood, I would imagine. That's what we hope. We definitely hope that because we know that we, we are very intentional with our approach with our, our adolescents and young adults. You know, just the approaches we have, being trauma-informed, being strength-based, transformative justice approach, um, radical healing. You know, we definitely are mindful in the way in which our youth experience us. We even consider ourselves a family. A lot of our youth may not have really felt that familiar feeling. And they maybe they have family, right? Friends that are family, but maybe they want a, another sense of family beyond their friends. And so we try to be that for our youth. So absolutely. You know, one of the things, you know, we our position is that every child who comes to the guidance center wow. has a background of trauma, whether it's identified or not. And it's not necessarily the overt things like child abuse or domestic violence, but community violence or poverty, et cetera. But, you know, often in our treatment, if it is like child abuse or domestic violence, the trauma, the events are over. Even if so, we can deal with the mental health impact because they're safe now. A difference with with the impact of racism is that it's persistent, it's ongoing, and there's no sense that it's ever going to end. So right. it's these children are facing sort of a, a lifetime Absolutely. of these traumas related to racism. So in that context, yeah. how the heck? Do we help them cope and help them to be resilient? Again, yes, definitely. Again, I, I echo again myself in talking about racial socialization, you know, where it starts at home with the parents. And also, like I, I was saying, having a transformative justice and trauma-informed approach where through tra transformative justice, 
we're also addressing the needs beyond restorative justice. And with having a trauma-informed approach, we are ensuring we are aware of the signs and symptoms to not re-traumatize our youth, right? Uh, we can also introduce them to meditation where they can relax their minds, which have been proven like after, I believe it's about 10 days, there's research that even indicates there's been improvements in the brain just from doing meditation 10 days straight, right? And so um, another thing I would say is mindfulness, which is very similar to meditation, but mindfulness activities where they're paying attention to their awareness in the present moment, not focusing on yesterday, not focusing on tomorrow, but um, continuing to accept and acknowledge their bodily sensations, their thoughts, their feelings. So being present, right? And then another one I would say, and I keep going on and on about this one too, is exercise. And the reason I say exercise, as cliche as it might sound, um, it actually reduces a lot of different uh, symptoms and uh, even anxiety symptoms, rapid, such as like rapid heart rate and feeling nervous. What happens is the blood circulation in the brain is actually enhanced through exercise and that's what improves our mood. And so exercise is definitely something I would totally encourage as well. Now, you, you referenced the parents and you talked about them earlier, too, as um, an important part of your, your programming, you know, and they themselves have likely had a lifetime of trauma related to racism, and then they're worried every time their kid ever leaves the home. Um, how do you support them? I know you mentioned that you do, but what services or things do you do to help out the parents? Absolutely. So we do have our family support program. And as I mentioned, there are ways that indirect supports can't directly support our youth. And so we do that. We provide groups. And so we literally will like what we do with exert your voice we provide groups just to give parents a space to to really just or give them a space but also to help uh them to also identify signs and symptoms of of mental health and uh there again them being in a group is very it's positive development as well like we um model with the black and brown minds matter um uh group but we use it with our parents where they're also normalized by other families, other parents. And so they're all able to share their experiences and they um, don't feel alone. And we know that trauma can be generational, right? And that's where uh, trauma is passed down from generation to generation. And so this was also very intentional in our goal of contributing to stopping generational trauma that our youth experience in their families. And so that is our contribution to it. Excellent. And, you know, I, you mentioned mentorship as well, and I, I'd love to hear what you see as the importance of mentorship and representation in their mentors to our young people of color. Oh, absolutely. Yes. When I tell you, when I first did this, research project, which was the Black Minds Matter a few years ago, which the one that served as a catalyst for psyches of color, they were like, oh my God, you're a psychologist? I've never seen a Black psychologist before. I've had a therapist, but my therapist was white or this or X, Y, Z, fill in the blank. And they just were not able to 
understand me and hearing their voices and hearing them say like how, even though this was therapy, that was something from the research that I was like, you know what? They keep talking about representation and the importance of it. And I also had another caveat in the program where I showed them a lot of youth leaders in the community who were doing amazing things, who were their age, and also showing them that there's more than just playing basketball or football. They're great, love basketball, love football, but there's more that you can do that maybe you don't have much more exposure. And so that is our our goal of our mentoring program is to really provide that exposure and however it, it it really goes to to help our youth in their in their pathways in their journeys in their purpose mental health providers are not exempt from the implicit biases of the general population a black child is more likely to be given the pejorative diagnosis of conduct or oppositional defiant disorder rather than the depression or anxiety assigned to their white peers with the same symptoms. That same black child is more likely to be referred to the juvenile justice system rather than to specialized mental health treatment for the same behavior. As professionals, we see the trauma and sadness in a white child while assuming a black child with the same presentation is a bad kid. Furthermore, families of color have an understandable reluctance to seek supports from institutions that have not historically represented them or understood them well. Dr. Stephen Roberts of Stanford University School of Humanities and Sciences found in 2020 that psychological research has an inherent racial bias. His research found that psychological publications that highlight race are rare and when race is discussed, it is authored mostly and edited almost entirely by white scholars. Further, he and his team found that researchers very often do not publish the race or ethnicity of their research subjects, leaving open the question of whether the findings are generalizable across groups. This raises the question of whether mental health services are neutral across race, culture, gender, and socioeconomic groups. Doctors Frederick Leong and Young Sue Park write, historically speaking, psychological testing and assessment with racial ethnic minority groups have been fraught with controversy, as even today, the majority of psychological research is standardized, validated, and found to be reliable with primarily white, middle-class, English-speaking samples. Further, he and his team found that researchers very often do not publish the race or ethnicity of their research subjects, leaving open the question of whether the findings are generalizable across groups. So. Dr. Tiara, you were concerned enough about the existing mental health system that you created an organization specifically for children of color. What did you see in the mental health system that led you to want to do that? Yes. Uh, I saw a system that disproportionately incarcerated Black and Latinx youth. I, I saw a system that was very unjust, um, 
as you may know, Black and Latinx youth are disproportionately suspended and expelled. And due to the stigma of mental health, they're least likely to receive mental health services. Um, just to share some statistics, one in three Black boys born today will be incarcerated at some point in their lifetime compared to one in 17 white boys. Black girls are six times more likely to be suspended when compared to their white counterparts. And Latinx youth are two to three times more likely to be incarcerated when they are compared to their white counterparts. And these are just stats that forever stay. <laughs> yeah. and, they're, and, I, and they've been what they are for a little while now. And, you know, so it's those statistics that remind me of the work I do, remind me of why I have a space for these Black and Latinx youth, you know? And so, yeah, absolutely. I, that The system, the the injustice system is what led me to this. You know, the stigma against mental health care tends to be pretty strong in communities of color. And, and you reference that that's one of the missions of Psyches of Color is to uh, decrease the stigma. But how can we do better, we as a system, do better at being accessible and engaging our communities of color? Absolutely. The first thing that comes to my mind is being culturally sensitive to our youth, making sure that mental health looks like them. I've had so many of you tell me mental health is for white people or even family members who aren't even youth say that's that white people stuff, you know, and it's like, are you serious? <laughs> no, it's not. It's for all. We all have mental health, you know, and so that's so. Uh, to answer your question, how we can do a better job is, yeah, being culturally sensitive. Also, if you are not a person of color who's working with the youth or a client of color, making sure that you acknowledge your privilege, you acknowledge the space that you occupy, like because that can go a long way for a person of color, just you acknowledging what you occupy, like how you just how you just acknowledged a few questions ago in the in um in regards to the land, you know, and so or even just being an ally. That's sort of what it was being an ally, and so um, that can really go a long way. Um, I would also say normalizing mental health, normalizing it so it doesn't sound like oh it is a room with a couch and a therapist and a client. You know, literally you can do therapy in very in spaces that are not so formal, so to say. I've done, I've worked with youth experiencing homelessness where I literally did curbside therapy. And that when I say curbside, we're just taking a walk or we're on the curb or something that it doesn't feel like this is therapy, but more so like this person is actually speaking to me culturally and sitting on the curb with me, like something I would have done on my own, you know, like you're meeting them halfway. So those are ways I could go on and on, but those are ways I'll stop there that come to my mind in regards to how we can be better, of, um, assess, better accessible and engaging with these communities. But this this next question is, is somewhat self-serving uh, because it's <laughs> something that I struggle with all the time. Um, and, 
you know, a big part of what I say, the mission of the guidance center obviously is to provide care to the families and the children and youth that we serve, but that we should have a second prong mission, which is to sort of try to change the world they live in as well. Um, so I'm, I'm just curious from your perspective, what is the role of mental health in creating larger societal change as it relates to racism? Yes. The role of mental health in creating larger societal change. I'm going to answer this in a very the role of mental health in creating larger societal change. Well, honestly, now, are you asking the role that I think should be in mental health? Or- yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm I'm also, as you probably have caught on, I'm also very non-traditional in my approaches to mental health. So I'm just going to let you know that there. <laughs> um, so what I will say is we have this, uh, and you might have seen it in our, our website, but we have this approach called radical healing. Were you able to see that? So I ra- didn't see that one. Go, please. Yeah, so radical healing, it's a strengths-based approach um, where we're building the capacity of how individuals respond to their environment that results in the overall well-being of that individual. So to give you an example, we're, like I said, a very non-traditional nonprofit where we even have... Um, Someone on our board, Mr. Lamar Ellis, who happens to be my cousin, who is incarcerated currently. And so where we, what we do in this space, and like I said, it's very radical, is we ensure that he still is a part of our community while being not in the community. So what that means is um, despite people's uh, oppressive states, we are able to still heal and to still radically move through and our journeys in life, despite the systems that may be holding us down and holding us back. And so, and that alone is healing. That alone really, um, it really improves our mental health. So Lamar, just to give you an example, he has a place in our on a website uh, where it's called Lamar's Thoughts and Faults. And Lamar literally journals while he's incarcerated and he'll share with me, this is how he indirectly mentors the youth. And when he does that, he shares to the youth, he gives advice based off his journal entry of being incarcerated. And it was a journal entry. I remember him talking about reading and how it's powerful and how it has really impacted him while being incarcerated. He was referring to Elon Musk and just saying, you know, really not to take advantage of the, of their the ability to, to read and to their knowledge and education. So I could go on and on, but what I would say um, in regards to your question, as I, I maybe or may have not answered it, <laughs> but what I would say is that our role is to not think traditional is, is where I'm going. Our role is to think radical, to think liberatory, liberation. I also identify as a liberation psychologist. And so just thinking about how do we liberate our our um, clients of color? How do we give them the freedom that they're seeking, even if it is a matter of, even if it's small, so to say, you know, freedom can be relative, right? And so that's, I can go on and on. You really tap my buttons, but that's what I would say is just being non-traditional in our way of thinking of what mental health or our role in mental health is. 
That's that's a great answer. And I did read quite a lot about Lamar on your website, actually. And I'm like, I want to talk to him. He <laughs> he uh, he inspired me. I, I I think it's he's probably uh, the best board member. I promise you he calls. That's the thing. He calls in. We sorry not to cut you off. I just get so excited talking about Lamar. He calls in when we have our board meetings and literally he only has 15 minutes to talk and we have to go right to new business just to make sure his voice is included in our voting. So it's a very non-traditional approach to how we even do business just to ensure Lamar, as he says, we're um, bridging the gap between the two worlds. <laughs> so, yeah, I think I've never heard of that. And I think it's a really, really creative, innovative idea. And I say, I say kudos to you for sure. Okay. Um, you know, curious, are there other systems mental health professionals should engage in their work with families of color, you know, community centers, clergy, wherever, you know, who else should we be engaging to broaden our impact? You know, and I could be a little biased because of the work I do, but I definitely will say like uh, juvenile justice systems. Um, and the reason I say that is because a lot of youth who are in those systems feel like the world is like forgotten about them. And even mental health professionals, like they, they need that mental health support. I'm even thinking about the carceral system and how there are times Lamar will tell me, you know, people aren't given, their mental health is not attended to unless they have a certain amount of time that they're about to exit back into the community, which is when they will consider them getting a therapist, you know? And so just knowing that hurts my heart, um, especially having worked in the prisons in East Baltimore, Maryland, myself, working in the schools in the prisons with youth charged as adults who all had IEPs, you know? So it, it just really hurts my heart just to know the way in which the system views mental health as it's like not, as it's a, a something that is not a priority, right? And so I, I definitely would say uh, the juvenile justice systems, the carceral system, that's like literally what comes to my mind. You know, last question, Dr. Tierra. I, I'm one of those, despite being in community mental health for decades, I'm one of those people who are just to my core, I have an optimistic temperament. Um, so I always end on a note of hope. So despite all the great challenges, um, what are the unexpected bright sides for you? What still gives you hope to do this work? Yes. What still gives me hope? Again, I don't know if I mentioned that we're also youth-led, psyches of color. So um, being youth-led, but my youth, they give me hope. They remind me of why I do what I do and their passion, their drive to support their peers is what really moves me. And just knowing that they are our, our future and just thinking about how we are in regards to our organization being really, um, in, like mental health is in our core, right? And just thinking about how we are very innovative and we're able to make mental health fun, but it still is healing. That's what gives me hope is that I can integrate hip hop. I can integrate 
you know, dancing and music and just have fun with it, but heal at the same time. That's what gives me hope because it's very cultural. And so that's where I'll stop right there. I I think that's wonderful. And thank you so much for sharing your insights and your experience and, and your energy. You are, I think, a very creative force. And we were lucky to speak with you today. You've definitely given me food for thought. And I just thank you for the important work that you do. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. <laughs> It's my position that by shining a light on these issues, admitting that they are in our own backyards, it will be easier for a struggling child to get some help. Ideally, we can all begin to be kinder and more supportive of each other. In My Backyard is brought to you by The Guidance Center, a children's mental health agency in Long Beach, California. In My Backyard is produced by Trisha Costales and Matthew Murray. Thank you to J. Vincent B. for original music. All other music licensed through Soundstripe. Thank you to our listeners and supporters. Please visit tgclb.org or text HOPE to 562-262-5689 to make a one-time donation or join our Hope and Healing Club to become a monthly donor today. Subscribe to In My Backyard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.